You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So we continue to make our way through the stories of King David. One more Sunday to go next week. Stories told in the biblical books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. This week the lectionary has once again made a massive leap from where we left off last Sunday. It's understandable, of course, because if we read the whole story bit by bit by bit, we'd be doing it for six months rather than just the two that we are. But there's still much that needs to be summarized in order to make tonight's story make sense and tie in to where we left off last week. Now, for anyone who loves to read historical fiction, or is maybe moved by the tragedies of Shakespeare, or a fan of the Game of Thrones, you need to know that these biblical stories rival all of those in drama, scandal, and intrigue. These are not tidy religious stories of cardboard characters that bring easy resolution or simplistic spiritual lessons. These are rough-edged stories of fallible and wounded people, theologically driven stories that dare to unflinchingly critique kingship, power, and hypocrisy, even at the price of revealing the brokenness of the most beloved protagonist of all, King David himself. Now, last Sunday, I said that while David has been forgiven for what he has done to Bathsheba and to Uriah, he still had to live with the consequences of those actions and of the way that he has failed to do real justice to his family. I characterize this as having less to do with punishment, per se, and more with the raw consequences that fall from the sort of husband and father and king that David has become. Well, that is precisely what is told in the chapters which the lectionary skipped over. That skipped section begins by introducing the reader to Amnon, David's eldest son and the heir to the throne. Some time passed, it says at the beginning of 2 Samuel 13, David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And David's son Amnon fell in love with Tamar. Now to be clear, Tamar is David's daughter from one of his wives. Amnon is a son from a different wife. But Amnon has fallen in love with his half-sister, or maybe not so much love as it is just raw sexual desire. 
The writer says that Amnon was, quote, so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. This doesn't sound very much like real love to me. Well, Amnon goes to his half-sister Tamar and he rapes her. And after he is done, he begins to despise her. The writer saying that he, quote, was seized with a very great loathing for her. Indeed, his loathing was even greater than the lust he felt for her. It's a truly repugnant and troubling description, isn't it? And what of Tamar? She is devastated, effectively cast out of her own home by her half-brother Amnon, And so she takes on the clothing of a mourner, ashes on her head, as a symbol of her brokenness. But she does have one ally and friend in the person of her full brother, Absalom. And Absalom takes Tamar into his home. But because their father David fails to do anything in response to Amnon's assault on Tamar, David knows it, he's made aware of it, he's not happy about it, but he won't do anything, won't even speak to Amnon about it. Well, Absalom's anger brews on behalf of his sister. Fully two years later, Absalom arranges for his soldiers to kill Amnon in revenge. This puts Absalom in a very precarious position with his father, So he flees, and it's another three years before Absalom is allowed to return to Jerusalem, and two more before he is forgiven and welcomed back into his father David's household. Well, one would hope that the reconciliation of a father and a son after such an incredible breach, a reconciliation that in the text reads very much like the parable of the prodigal son, you'd hope that would mark the beginning of peace in David's family, but it's not to be. And there is something ominous in what the writer says about Absalom at this point, right after his reconciliation with his father. The writer says, Now in all Israel... There was no one to be praised so much for his beauty as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And then the writer makes note of his long, luxurious hair. Yet what had been the warning about relying too much on physical appearance? after the very handsome King Saul had been discredited. Samuel had said, The Lord doesn't see as mortals see. The Lord looks on the heart, not on outward appearances. So the writer, noting the beauty of Absalom, is saying, "Uh Uh-oh. Indeed, all is not well. For Absalom continues to brood even though he has apparently reconciled with his father. 
continues to brood, and in time he becomes aware that his own popularity is growing in all of the areas outside of Jerusalem. He is becoming seen as the heir apparent, and so he slowly begins to mount a rebellion against his own father. That will turn into a full-scale civil war. King David and his loyal soldiers must flee from Jerusalem, the city known as the city of David, no less. He has to flee from his own city. Absalom and his soldiers occupy it. This is not a pretty picture in David's family yet again. What Absalom is not reckoned with, however, is the military skill of his father, the deep loyalty that his father's soldiers hold to him. It isn't long before a great battle is waged in the forest of Ephraim. We read about that tonight. It is decisively won by David's forces. But did you catch the last thing that David said to his officers before they set out for that battle in the forest? He said, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. But they don't. As we heard in tonight's reading, quote, Absalom was riding on his mule. And the mule went under the thick branches of great oak. His head caught fast in the oak and he was left hanging between heaven and earth. Discovered there by Joab and his men, Absalom is quickly put to death. The word is carried back to David by messenger telling him that the civil war has been effectively crushed. Of this picture of Absalom being caught in the branches of a tree, Walter Brueggemann comments, the description of Absalom's entrapment in the tree by the hair of his head is given in a very difficult text. The Hebrew is obscure, That obscurity may reflect the reticence of the narrator or the inability of the tradition to express what in fact happened because it is so dark and ominous. And then he adds, Absalom hangs between heaven and earth, which, suggests the narrator, is speaking of more than Absalom's physical condition. Absalom is suspended between life and death, between the sentence of a rebel and the value of a son, between the severity of the king and the yearnings of the father. And I would add that David, too, is similarly suspended between the severity of the king and the yearning of the father. He knows well his brilliance as a military king and commander, but has also had to confront his profound failings as a father and a husband. His line, deal gently with the young man Absalom, was a last-ditch effort to somehow make up for those failings, but it's ignored by battle-savvy soldiers who knew that such mercy was not going to win any war. Broken now with the news that Absalom has been killed, David weeps and utters his anguished lament, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, 
Would that I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Some of you will be familiar with a song written by Pierce Pettis, recorded by Steve Bell on his 2011 album, Kindness. Now, Steve is away from the city on vacation right now. Otherwise, I would have invited him to play that song as a part of this sermon. I will include the recording on the podcast. I would encourage you to give it a listen when that's released tomorrow. For now, I will read to you the lyrics of the song. The lyrics stand as a kind of poetic sermon all on their own. This is Absalom, Absalom, with words by Pierce Pettis. Come and smear me with the branches from that tree, hyssop dipped in innocent blood to make me clean. Let an old man's broken bones once more rejoice. Absalom, you were my little boy. Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, my son, caught in the tangles of deceit, hanging lifeless from that tree. Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, my son, caught in the tangles of your hair, the fruit of my own sin to bear, O Absalom. You were the laughing boy who bounced upon my knee. You learned to play the harp and use the shepherd's sling, always watching my impressionable son. O Absalom, what have I done? You were watching when I took a good man's wife, gave the order for his murder just to cover up my crime. All the vanity, cruel arrogance, and greed. O Absalom, you learned it all from me. Such a moving portrait of a broken-hearted king, weeping as he confronts the cost of his own failings, the loss of a son, a rebel son, but a son all the same, who he remembers as that child who learned so much from him. In the next chapter, Joab, his officer, will come to David, tell him to get up, dry his tears, wash his face, go out into the public to let the people know that he's alive and well, and that he's glad his soldiers are alive and victorious. Get up, David. Claim your kingship. It's what Israel needs. And so David does. And order is slowly restored to the land. But the scribes who've told this story need Israel to know that none of this has come without a great cost. There is a painful truth to this man, David, no question. And unless Israel is willing to tell that story in its fullness, it won't be able to tell the deeper story of God's dream. God's dream not only for them as Israel, as the Jews, but for all of humanity. A kingdom unlike anything that David could ever build. They need to know that even their greatest king bears deep, deep wounds, and that the true and lasting kingdom will not and cannot be built by human hands. Israel, like us, 
needs to learn to turn more steadfastly to God and to God's steadfastness. When we do turn toward God's steadfastness, we have a fighting chance of not falling into the kind of painful truth David had to confront in himself. O Absalom, what have I done? When we turn to God's steadfastness, we are also gifted with a faith that says that when we do fall and find ourselves reduced to tears in face of what we've wrought, it's not an officer who will come and tell us to get up, dry your face, go out in public, get on with it. Rather, it is grace that will raise us from our knees, wipe the tears from our faces, and set us again on our stumbling way of redemption. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Absalom, Absalom, 
This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.